What's up, YouTube? Uh, today, we're going to be uh, touching on how BMF failed. So for those who guys don't know, BMF was like one of the largest uh, drug trafficking organizations in the United States, headed by uh, Big Meech and Southwest T. Now, what we're going to be doing on this particular episode, I'm going to actually be going over a live review um, of a documentary through my guys at Fresh and Fit to actually give you guys a breakdown of this story. And I really feel like, uh, I know I told you guys earlier this year that I, my plan is, you know, to go crazy with YouTube this year. So that's what I'm doing, doing a lot of live streams, dropping a video every single day. So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, and this actual uh, live stream is actually live. But what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to stream it, going to stream a documentary, going to stream, you know, Myron's feedback on this documentary. But also, I'm going to give my takes on the whole situation. Personally, I really feel like BMFL because, uh, you know, running a drug tra trafficking organization for 15 years is a very long time to be running drugs. But the thing is, is that uh, um, when it, when people start making a little bit too much money, um, that's where, you know, things start to go left. And also, just majority of the people in BMF are informants. So, um and particularly, Blue Da Vinci is definitely a, an informant or a rat or a snitch, as the streets would say, right? But let's go ahead and get into it. Ugh. Actually, went on a VPN and I couldn't find it anyway. Let's so, see, let's see. Yeah. So in 1985 in Southwest. Matrix and man, this, this gave me a hard time. Yeah, this documentary. So shout out to the supporter. So, um, We'll get right into it, guys. So here it is. Um, BMF, right? Here's a Wikipedia page. Black Mafia family. BMF was a drug trafficking and money laundering organization in the United States. The Black Mafia was founded in 1985 in Southwest Detroit by brothers Demetrius, Edward Big Meech, Flannery, uh, and by 2000 had established cocaine distribution sales throughout the United States through their Los Angeles-based drug source and, directed, uh, and direct links to Mexican drug cartels. The Black Mafia operated from two main hubs, one in Atlanta for distribution run by Demetrius and one in Los Angeles to handle incoming shipments from Mexico run by Terry Flannery. Okay, and that's his brother. Uh, and, you know, th that's an overall of them, guys. We're going to go into... Yeah, what I will say is uh, this is actually pretty funny because uh, uh, in recent news, some people who actually were trying to find drugs in Mexico recently got yeah, that's how y'all know this shit is exclusive. We're playing it on Windows Media Player. You can't even find this thing on the <laughs> yeah. internet anymore. You cannot play it on. Yeah. Max. So, um, guys, let's get right into it. I don't know how to tell you, but I got this motherfucker stuffed like a motherfucking baked potato. Guys, we even went to the extent of contacting Don Sikorsky to try to get yeah, down this documentary. The director, yeah. We tracked down his Instagram and everything, yeah. and we both sent him DMs. So uh, this documentary was not easy to get. Shout out to, again, once again, thank you to the, the support that got it for us in good quality, because if you try to get this thing on YouTube, it is absolutely trash. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's keep going. We really living a life that you niggas is rapping about. That's another thing. 
Okay, Blue Da Vinci, this is one of the uh, members of BMF who you guys will find out later what ended up uh, happening. See, I'm going to tell you, nigga. We live in this shit for real, nigga. I'm talking about the, the million dollar joints, man, from state to state, man. We really, really doing it. And ask a nigga. If you don't believe me, ask a nigga that you know that you can respect the word, nigga. The year was 2000. And hip hop was on the rise, steadily moving to the forefront of American Crews and companies were emerging everywhere. Stars were being born every day. No alarm bells rang when an obscure but very well funded entertainment company named Black Mafia Family entered the public eye. They were opulent, they were excessive. Known for arriving in lavish motorcade, congregating in droves, and buying out the bars and elite clubs in every major American city. But that was the culture. That was the business. By 2005, their brand had taken hold. BMF was regularly associated with A-list hip-hop acts such as Young Jeezy, Slim Thug, and Fabulous. At their high-water mark, billboards that read, The World is BMFs could be seen throughout major American cities, seemingly a testament to their success in the entertainment industry. But by the end of 2005... A sinister shadow was cast. Tonight, two local men are in custody in connection with a major drug investigation. More than it was not the FBI that did this investigation, guys. It was the DEA. So I got to go ahead and give credit to them. I don't know why they keep saying the FBI here, but FBI, open up! the news was incorrect in this one. The DEA was the lead federal agency in this investigation, and they did quite a bit of work, which we're going to see here in a second. Two hundred pounds of cocaine. 100 pounds of marijuana and as much as 1.5 million dollars in cash were allegedly found at his home in California. Agents say in this whole operation they see six kilos of cocaine, 80 pounds of marijuana, and seized more than a million dollars in cash and in assets. We expect to learn more about this operation in the coming days. After years of covert law enforcement investigations, it was revealed that BMF was actually a cold, calculated criminal enterprise hiding behind a very public disguise. Over the course of 15 years, the crew had made over $270 million in trafficking cocaine around the country. That's insane. As the investigation uh, unfolded, over 150 members of BMF were indicted, and the Black Mafia family was named one of the largest domestic drug distribution organizations in American history. There's a reason why Rick Ross in the song Blow Money Fast, he goes, I think I'm Big Meech. Huh, Larry Hoover. Guys, these dudes were out here really selling a lot of drugs and using the music business and a record label as a front for their criminal activity. Boom, God. So Atlanta, Georgia was their main hub. And just so you guys know, real quick, Atlanta has been a drug trafficking hub for decades. And the reason being, guys, is because, and I'll show you guys this on a map real fast. Um, actually, Angie, can you pull up uh, Atlanta? Actually, no, hold on. I'll do it because it'll be a little bit easier. Um, Atlanta, Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. If you go on a map for Atlanta, Georgia, I'm going to go ahead and uh, sh show you guys this real fast. Hold on. Go to StreamYard. Okay. Let me go ahead and move. All right, share screen. Give me one second, guys. Right. Here is where Atlanta is situated, right, from a geographical standpoint. Let me show you all how drug trafficking works in the United States, all right? 
So typically most of the drugs comes in through uh, Mexico, Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it comes in either through, you know, Nuevo Laredo, Laredo here, right? Or Zapata or Reynosa, McAllen, Harlingen, you know, all these areas here, right? Or it can go more uh, Western Texas, such as um, El Paso, right? And then if you're going to go real West Coast, Very you know, you got, you got Nogales, you got um, Tijuana. All these are like huge drug trafficking hubs, right? To get drugs into the United States, right? Some of the main ports. And you got San Isidro also, uh, honorable mention. But most of the drugs, right, comes in that's going to end up in Atlanta, typically comes here through Laredo, right? Which is where I used to be stationed or, okay, in the Valley. This whole area of Texas is called the Valley. I'm very familiar with South Texas. I spent so much time there, right? I have a, you know, little uh, special place in my heart. Pause. Anyway, so the drugs come into the United States and they're brought to San Antonio. Okay, San Antonio is one of the main hubs, guys. Okay, and from San Antonio, as you guys can see, there's a main interstate highway here, Interstate 10. All right. And this highway is critical because it gets you to where? Houston. And then also Interstate 35 from Laredo. Right. Because from Laredo, you got Interstate 35 takes you to San Antonio. Interstate 35, you keep going north. Where does it take you? Austin, Texas, another major city. And then Dallas. Okay, and then from there, it'll take you throughout the entire Midwest because 35 goes all the way to, if I'm not mistaken, where's 35? Yeah, here's 35 still takes you to Minneapolis uh, all the way up into Duluth. Okay, shit. But the other thing, too, guys, you got to remember, most of the drugs is going to transit here at San Antonio. So if it's going to go north, it keeps going on 35. Well, a lot of times it goes what east and it's going to go hit Houston once it hits Houston. The next big destination, guys, is right here in Atlanta, okay? Um, because Interstate 10 will get you to uh, the other interstates, which will get you into Atlanta, right? But there's obviously a lot of other major cities. Mobile is another big drug hub, New Orleans, et cetera, Lafayette, right? All these towns are, are on Interstate 10. But the point is you got to get east. And the reason why Atlanta is so big, guys, is because Atlanta covers the entire east coast of the united states because so once the drugs come in through mexico through here right we'll follow my mouse into texas into san antonio right around here goes east bam ends up in atlanta you're in a perfect position because from atlanta you could take it to the midwest like chicago you can take it to georgia or uh, south southern georgia or florida you can move it into the carolinas you can move it northeast into obviously new york boston new all of new england pennsylvania ohio that is why Atlanta is so critical because it's a perfect transition point uh, from a drug trafficking perspective to get your product into anywhere else on the East Coast of the United States. And let's keep, I, I'll keep it honest with y'all. Well, not even honest. This is the truth. Most of America's population, guys, is East. Okay? It's actually not West, contrary to popular belief. Most of the U.S. population is concentrated East, this way. All right? Because you guys got to remember, th- this is all desert out here in the West, right? Outside of a few major cities. A lot of these areas are uninhabitable, right? So that's how drug trafficking works in the United States from an overall view. But nine out of 10 times when drugs end up in Atlanta, it comes from Mexican drug trafficking cartels that control um, Texas a lot of times. But you're going to see with this organization, they played a little bit different. But Atlanta is a big transition drug hub. All right, let's get back into the documentary. Hope you guys enjoyed that. What was that, Angie? That was a geography class to me. There you go. I don't yeah. Know anything about these states? <laughs> yeah, it's all good, man. It's funny you were still able to name three states earlier today. 
Unlike yeah, uh, the other girls, which is hilarious. I was struggling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll give you a pass. You're a foreigner. You barely speak English, so it's okay. If you go out on the streets of Atlanta today, every street corner's got a guy that wants to commit uh, a crime. Every street corner's got a guy that thinks he's the best drug dealer out there. But you know, you do have to ask yourself: Was there something interesting or different about these guys? These are the guys that were were willing to go one step further. They were the guys that were willing to innovate one, uh, you know, uh, one step more than than the next guy was. Incredibly self confident, um, strong willed, and you know, willing to think outside the box. In order to run a big operation, the kind that BMF did, you've got to be a planner. You got to be a thinker. You got to be someone who can imagine a future. You know, where your business is growing and where your reach is is growing. And most of the guys that you talk to on the streets, they're interested in getting their money today, right then, right there. And these guys, I think, they were willing to think beyond that. They wanted something bigger for themselves. They have these two brothers who came from Detroit, came from nothing, and built like literally a $270 million by conservative estimates organization, employing 500 people. Everybody who's described it to me, who's worked on it, has called it the biggest case they've ever worked on. The whole idea of a black mafia family was like a ghost story. Um, cops told, like you would tell it to your kids. Um, there was just, there was no presence. You didn't see them anywhere. Um, but if you had asked people on the street, you mentioned BMF, they wouldn't talk about it. So this guy was a former prosecutor, ADA, assistant district attorney. So he prosecuted the lower level crimes, which ended up helping with the, uh, you know, the big scale federal investigation later on. And typically small cases end up turning into big cases later on. So it was very real to the people who were selling drugs and doing drugs. But to the rest of us, we had no proof that that existed. Truthfully, a lot of stuff that sounded like urban legend, it sounded like too big and too much to be true. But that they... And this guy, Bob Bell here, guys, this is a big reason why I wanted y'all to uh, see this documentary versus other stuff. This was the actual case agent responsible for taking down this organization. The case agent, guys, is always going to be the most knowledgeable person when it comes to the investigation because they're the one writing the reports. They're the ones running the sources. They're the ones doing the wiretaps. They're the one writing the affidavits, etc. So the fact that this guy is able to give insight into this case is huge because not often do you able, are you able to sit with the actual agent that conducted the investigation were large-scale cocaine distributors moving hundreds and thousands Santa of says right there he was the lead investigator uh, from 2004 to 2007 on this investigation, which means he was the case agent in, in oh, special so agent this terms. was like back in 2007? Uh, yes. Well? Yeah, this when is... they took them down. Yep, wow. they took them down in like 05, I think, if I'm not mistaken. In and essentially living um, like celebrities or better than celebrities. They were taunting us. You know, it, it was probably no secret to them. Okay, and this guy, JS, it says lead investigator, BMF. You guys are wondering, well, hold on. Wasn't the other guy the, the, uh, the lead investigator? So normally, guys, in big investigations like this, you need something called a co-case agent. And the co-case agent's job is to run the case with you, manage the case with you, because when you got a case this big that spans several states, several different crimes, you know, multiple defendants, et cetera, complex investigations like this, you need two, sometimes even three agents on board. I remember when I did my uh, organized crime drug enforcement task force case, I had like five agents on the case with me. I had a guy from DEA that worked with me. I had a guy from the FBI. I had a guy obviously with HSI and we all worked together and we were all, were all case agents. And then with HSI, I had two guys helping me from my agency. So big investigations require a lot of manpower and then you require a lot of coordination and you want, uh, you need multiple case agents for big cases. So uh, this guy was, um, 
a cold case on this investigation. Can you show real quick what's the DEA? Because I know from Breaking Bad. Okay. But I didn't know. I I mean. Do me a favor because you got that wiki page open. Yeah. You go ahead and type in uh, DEA into Google and then we'll share from your screen. Here it is. Oh, you already got it? Yeah. Oh, you you, look at that. Shout out to Angie in the house. Already on top of it. Okay. Yeah. You know, good question, Angie, because a lot of people might not know who the DEA is. The DEA, uh, a.k.a. the Drug Enforcement Administration, is United States federal law enforcement agency under the U.S. Department of Justice tasked with combating drug trafficking and distribution within the U.S. It is a lead agency for domestic enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act, sharing concurrent jur- jurisdiction with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, a.k.a. the FBI, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, which is who I used to work for, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection, although DEA has sole responsibility for coordinating and pursuing U.S. drug investigations both, dom- both domestically and abroad. It was established in 1973 as part of the U.S. government's war on drug Drugs. The DEA has an intelligence unit that is also a member of the U.S. intelligence community. While the unit is part of the DEA chain of command, it also reports to the director of national intelligence. The DEA has been criticized for scheduling drugs that have medical uses and for focusing on operations that allow it to seize money rather than those involving drugs that cause more harm. And yeah, that is one of the valid critiques of the DEA. And the DEA, guys, is uh, tasked with investigating Title 21 of the United States Code. Um, and that is uh, the Controlled Substances Act, okay, within the uh, United States Code. So DEA is a very mission, one mission specific agency. And to be honest, it's kind of one of the weak points, but that's all they do is work. Nothing else but Title 21. And it works along with the FBI? Uh, Most of the time? Sometimes they do. Sometimes. uh, Sometimes. But uh, the the DEA actually is responsible for getting other agencies Title 21 authority, which allows them to investigate drugs. So the FBI have Title 21 authority. My former agency, Homeland Security Investigations, have Title 21 authority. Um, And a couple other agencies as well. But those are two big ones. But I can't tell you how many times we've like fought with DEA over drug cases. I will know often where other agencies really fight the DEA for drug cases because the DEA looks at it like, yo, this is our bread and butter. Why are y'all coming in? You guys can go investigate other crimes. So it happens a lot where agencies fight together. Um, Homeland Security, my old agency, literally, I can't even fights with the one of two things because it's a lot of work. So you guys are definitely going to um, enjoy that one. But uh, good questions, Angie. We'll go back into, into the doc. Because you're probably asking questions that, like, for me, I mean, I already know the answer, so I, I don't even think about it. Yeah, but um, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm asking. Yeah. No, no, no. That's... And I'm also not, not familiar with, like, American law. Yes. So that's why I'm asking, you know, yeah. like, to be on the same page. And and I'm glad that you're asking because we do have a lot of international viewers at once. Cool. So, you know, no questions. I'm there for you guys. Yeah, she's asking for y'all, man. <laughs> So uh, going back, okay, so yeah, this is the co-case agent here, guys. Um, we gave you a lot of sauce there, but let's get back into it. And we were after them. And they just thought they were untouchable. They were, they were far enough removed that nothing was going to happen to them. One of the investigators said, you know, all cocaine is three generations away from BMF. One part entertainment company, one part street crew. Black Mafia family was an urban dream come true. The combination was so seductive and so lucrative that during their peak, BMF had 400 people on their payroll. And, and I want to make this very clear, guys. Back then, okay, you guys might be like, whoa, like, what the hell? Back then, BMF was it, guys. Like, Young Jeezy was an A-list rapper. You know what I mean? They, these guys over at BMF were aligning themselves with some of the top artists in the day. So not only were they a huge drug trafficking organization, they weren't bums when it came to the rappers that they were working with. These are all top tier guys back then. I know Young GZN is relevant now for all my young boys. But back then, 
<laughs> oh man, Funny Thug guy. Motivation 101. You know what I mean? Let's get it. You know, hey, all those ad libs that you guys like see these rappers with now. Young Jeezy was one of the first ones to do that. <laughs> I'm from the Black Mafia family, the biggest guy in the world. Cross branding, right? You've got the music, and you've got the product, and you've got the women, and you've got the you know the image. All these things are kind of playing off one another. If you're talking about music, if you're talking about the drug trade in those days, everything was connected with BMF. That name was coming up over and over again. It took a lot of ability and leadership skills to hold together all the moving parts that they had going on, just like it does in any corporation or business they structure it like an organization where they have like their top level the ceo the coo the cfo uh, then you had your middle managers who managed each one of the different cities in the different states and then you had your logistics you know your couriers they were a very good crew as far as a drug organization they were really really organized they had a lot of people working for them they had a lot of people eating off them it, there's the caricature and the stereotype of what a gang leader is or what a drug lord is. You know, it's New Jack City, it's Scarface. But the reality of it is you get success through planning, through patience. And I think Nelly. those guys, they had a much yeah. more sophisticated view. You see Big Meech with Nelly right there? There's yeah. Big Meech. Of what this was about. They didn't say, I'm the drug lord and I'm gonna act like a drug lord. They were focused on making money. At the top of the organization stood two brothers. Demetrius Flannery, or Big Meech, was the face of the organization, the press-friendly CEO. Demetrius tended to be more flamboyant. He was more public. He had a bigger-than-life persona, and he liked portraying that. Terry, Southwest T, was the younger brother and had no interest in the attention. Seldom seen, he was the architect of the operation, the planner, the mastermind. Um, Terry was understated, very protective, and, and very shrewd. Terry, on the other hand, was a businessman, was every bit as, as influential and competent as Demetrius, but tended to like to try to fly under the radar and stay low-key and low-profile a little more. Terry was the quiet one. Um, Terry was the brains behind it. He enjoyed his lifestyle. He ran it more like a business than maybe a family. Hey, uh, happy holiday to y'all, man. This is another reason why I like this documentary so much. What you guys are hearing is actual Title Three intercepts from the investigation. So you got a conversation here between Charles Parson and his boss, Terry Flannery, okay? Uh, Big Meech's brother. And this is from the summer of 2004, Exhibit 2500211, or 25211, U.S. versus Brian Garrett and Benjamin Smith. What y'all got up for the Hey, man, I'm trying to get everything together before next month kick in, man. And I want to get your apartment cleaned out. I was just coming up with a plan, but I need you. Get your apartment cleaned out. That More than likely, what that is, guys, um, is him saying, yo, I need a spot cleaned out so that I can go ahead and bring some drugs over to stash. Okay? Because normally, when you're doing with drug trafficking, guys, the drugs got to get imported to the United States. Once they get imported to the United States, they need to be brought immediately to a stash house to be held, to be sold to other distri local distributors, okay? So, like, let's say you get 100 kilos of cocaine that come into the United States, right? It was described earlier. It gets into Laredo. Their job is to get it the hell out of Laredo into San Antonio. From there, maybe five bricks get sent to Houston. Another 10 gets sent to Austin. Another 10 gets sent west to Arizona somewhere. And then maybe another 10 goes into Atlanta. So 
it gets to a hub, and then from there, the big load of hundreds of kilos that came from the border have to get distributed and sent to major cities uh, in and out. So this guy right here is probably very close to the actual smuggling event where he's trying to now figure out a place to put the drugs at. I need you. I don't like fucking with Arnold. I'm going to have to go over there. No choice. Don't do it. That's what you're fucking with. I don't have a number on him, huh? I'm going to tell the car you. That's who you're fucking with. Oh, okay then. Now, quit doing what you want to do and do what I tell you to do. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Arnold call you. All right. Okay. So, as you guys can see, the way this phone call is being structured, what is Terry telling him? Don't call me. Call Arnold. And he and why is he saying that? He's saying that because he doesn't want to be tied directly to the drug trafficking activity. Call Arnold. I don't want you calling me because that ties me directly into the situation. So let's say you get busted. Now there's these phone calls that show that I might have been involved in this conspiracy, etc. And this happens a lot of times, guys, in drug trafficking organizations where the bosses try to insulate themselves from the criminal activity and tell them, you contact this guy. This is your dude that deals with X, Y, Z. So in other words, he needs to talk to the stash house operator, who is more than likely this guy, Arnold. But this dude can't get a hold of Arnold. doesn't have the number for him. So he's calling Terry. And as you guys can see, Terry gets extremely flustered from him calling him. Okay? Because that's not his job. He's not a stash house operator. He's the brains of the organization. This dude needs to know his place and contact Arnold, who is the next leg of the uh, drug trafficking conspiracy. Everybody moved like brothers. And everybody from different places. Milwaukee, St. Louis. Detroit, Texas, Atlanta, Cali, you know what I'm saying, Florida. We got people from everywhere in our mind. Everybody move as one. Everybody is prospering in some kind of way, in their own way. Every man plays his own role. And it's and everything starts with the leader. I'm a good leader, so I got good people that follow. You know what I'm saying? It's simple. The Black Mafia family was an ambition 20 years in the making, arising from the hard streets of Detroit. Meech and Terry got into the drug game for one simple reason. They no longer wanted to be poor. By the late 80s, Meech and Terry led a small drug ring, peddling crack cocaine at local high schools. And that's not to say that everyone who lives in these neighborhoods... And just so you guys know, Detroit is consistently in the top 10 most dangerous cities in the United States. Literally one of the worst places. Okay, and, and that happened uh, because a lot of the car uh, factories, you know, Ford, et cetera, started closing down. And that ended up leaving a, a kind of a vacuum hole in Detroit where it just led to widespread poverty. Neighborhoods buys into a criminal lifestyle. But in a lot of these neighborhoods where money is scarce, opportunity is scarce, most of those people, if you called them on it and said, how can you allow this stuff to happen right outside of your home? Most of them would turn around and say to you, well, how can you criticize me for this when I have nothing? Terry and Demetrius Flannery grew up in the hard scrabble area of southwest Detroit, uh, right up against the cities of Ecorse and River Rouge, very blue collar, tough area. And they grew up on a dead end street, uh, 1555 South Edgel, a gray nondescript home at the end of the street. You know, Meech had told me the gas would get turned off in the winter, they'd have no heat in it. And he watched his parents who worked have to struggle through that. I mean, he told me straight up, he's like, yeah, a job at McDonald's wasn't going to cut it. I learned that. There was another route for me. He's very unapologetic about that. You get the Flinters back in the 80s, you get a couple guys who are kind of independent traffickers out there 
moving kilos and making a buck, but they don't have this monstrous organization and don't have the leadership skills. And our- okay, according to Forbes, guys, I'm looking at this right now. Detroit is the sixth most dangerous city in the United States. Uh, behind What's the first one? The, it goes uh, in order. St. Louis, Missouri, number one. Mobile, Alabama, two. Birmingham, Alabama, three. Baltimore, Maryland, four. Five, Memphis, six. Detroit, seven. Cleveland, eight. New Orleans, nine. Shreveport, Louisiana, ten. Baton Rouge, which I'm not surprised. That Bunch any of them of those is from Louisiana. Yep, yep. It's one of the poorest states in the U.S. Wow. And I also want you to notice Shreveport, Baton Rouge, and uh, New Orleans – Right, as well as Mobile, Alabama, and Birmingham aren't that far from where Interstate Highway 10, which I just described, is a big drug trafficking highway. So, <laughs> there you, know. you go. As charismatic as they are in 2000. You have reached the Sprint Voice mailbox of 6331. To leave a voice message, press 1 or just wait for the call. Swipe boy. SOS, she left me in the jungle, man. It's the jungle out here, man. If you are satisfied with your message, press 1. The Flinnery Brothers were on DEAs and IRSs and, and other law enforcement agencies' radar for quite some time. The Detroit DEA, headed by case agent Bob Bell, had been investigating another drug trafficking crew called the Puritan Avenue Boys. In fact, Demetrius Flinnery was arrested along with a Colombian in Detroit back in 1994. However, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. So there was, there was information out there for years about the, the legend and the prowess of the Flinnery brothers. They had become too big and too prolific and they needed to be investigated. I know they want, I know they want, I, I know they want, I know they want. In a complex case like BMF and tracking down the two brothers, there were numerous vital steps that the DEA took that enabled them to put together a case that stands close to 10 years and involved the efforts of numerous branches of local and federal law enforcement. And it was a logistical nightmare, and the only way we were successful was, was by working together with uh, our count. And those are real photos, guys, of the money seized. You can see with the trap compartments in the vehicle, the cell phones that they took. This was a huge investigation. DEA counterparts, IRS counterparts, and other law enforcement counterparts all over the country. As far as nationwide investigations, this is, you know, the biggest one I've ever been involved in. And we built that relationship up, built up trust, and we shared information seamlessly. You know, my job is putting pieces of a puzzle together. A huge organization that's stretched across the whole United States. You just don't put that together in one day. It takes a lot of time, a lot of man hours, a lot of cooperation with all the federal agencies and local PDs. If at any time anybody wanted to, any law enforcement wanted to take down their part of the case, this case would not have ripened uh, to its fullest extent. With the constant threat of law enforcement, snitching, and violence, Meech and Terry needed unwavering loyalty from their crew. Meech's natural generosity was the greatest reinforcement. It don't make no difference if you the maid or if you the motherfucking bodyguard. Everybody get extras around here, French benefits. I'm driving this tonight. Niggas gonna be like, who is that? That's blue with the GT cool. Anything that you can do to engender loyalty is gonna work in your favor. Companies and corporations do it through incentive programs and bonusing. In the criminal underworld, people do it through relationships. Hello. What up, Joe? 
Lord, I'll go. Now I just call and let you know, man, pulling over in my truck for about two, three hours now, man. It's crazy, but that's the type of shit they do, though. They ain't find nothing in the truck. They ain't saying shit about the tenant windows, but they claim that uh, they smell marijuana in my truck, and I don't even smoke in my truck. That's terrible. That's terrible. It ain't nothing in there, so they feel like dick no, what I'm saying is, they didn't smell no weed in there. I do not smoke in that truck at all, B, is what I'm saying, period. They just want to live, they just probably want to be all on it, because the truck new and the car old, all that shit look new for a young nigga. Probably ain't none of that shit in their name, that's why they, they do all that shit. Yeah, they talking crazy, ain't they? They talking crazy. <laughs> I rap with you in the bitch. You got a robbing ass ball. And they thought they were safe. <laughs> Little do they know that the DEA caught every single second of that conversation. And the thing is, even though they didn't find drugs, guys, the fact that he called them to say they didn't find shit, etc., and I don't smoke weed in my car, but they searched me, that can be used as evidence to show knowledge that, yo, the police are on me. And I guarantee you, at this point, they probably started to be a little bit suspicious that they had searched the car knowing that there's no way that the said marijuana would be here, marijuana would be there because clearly they don't smoke in a vehicle used to transport drugs because that would be very stupid. You get the police probable cause to search a vehicle, and that's the last thing they want. So they probably got put on radar, or maybe not, the way they were speaking on the phone. But regardless, the DEA was listening. Then you're going to be a robbing-ass group. If you got a real boss who know how to sacrifice and take the bad along with the good and show his crew up, know how to be men, then this is what you get. Everybody's shining like new mother. Ain't no to build loyalty amongst its members by uh, actually putting family members of defendants, organization members, on a stipend. In fact, one recorded call, uh, Terry was talking to a defendant who was getting ready to go in for a, uh, to serve his sentence. Terry offered to pay Benjamin Johnson's wife about $6,000 a month while he was away. $72,000 a year tax-free isn't bad to get by on. They really produce <laughs> loyalty through reward rather than through the threat of punishment. Their organization gave notoriety to people who felt they were part of something exciting and important. They were very generous with those around them. They provided a lifestyle. A lot of time was spent at clubs. There were a lot of women around. You know, a lot of these guys on the lower level, when they were part of this particular group, BMF, they had status when they walked through the door. In BMF, if there wasn't a written code, there was definitely a spoken. They were all brothers. They all moved together. Meech preached that jealousy, envy, or the distraction of women. You can see, man, the, the social proof is real. You can see him with A-list rappers. You can see Trina sitting down right there. He's in the music videos, got the chain, got a crew of like 100 plus with him. So these guys were flying high back then with the baggy clothes. If you guys remember, that was a style back then, man. This brings back so many memories. All you young boys don't remember this, though. And among the crew members was not welcome at all. We don't fall out over no girls. We hit them all. They hit my hoes, I hit they fall out over no girls. We right, I don't all. remember this. But, I mean, I kind of grew up with people who were fans of the that don't want to be shared, then that, that's your own personal one. It was like, they had a little time. Yeah, it, right. We ain't falling out over no hoes. strip club won't be what they are now. They go out for BMF. From the onset, Meech and Terry proved to be resourceful business partners capable of capitalizing on every opportunity. When Terry was younger, he was a bystander to a shootout. 
and his right eye was grazed by a stray bullet. Doctors botched the surgery, and he was awarded a cash settlement, so he used that money to establish a legitimate sedan service in Detroit. Ah, that's why he's cross-eyed. The sedan service not only provided a legitimate front to wash the drug money, it provided a discreet method to transport large quantities of drugs. But that oh, actually became shit. sort of the, the skeleton. That ended up the infrastructure, becoming the infrastructure for which these guys would operate in to run their drug trafficking organization. Wait till you guys see this here, how they did this. Really interesting stuff. And a much more advanced fleet of vehicles Sorry, that would I eventually move thousands of vehicles cocaine. Was that you found? I the actually LinkedIn? Did, did found oh, it. Oh, for LinkedIn. the LinkedIn? Yeah. Put and, it on the screen. And they still have it. It's on the screen. It's uh, on the screen. It's right here. No, that, that's the Wikipedia right here. Shit. You got to hit share and then, uh, or just put it up in the screen where the BMF thing is. Yeah, I'll keep playing it until you. Okay. Okay, here. Right there? You got it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So what is the BMF? The the BMF Entertainment Music Group. So what this the is like fuck? this is the discography, I think, and LinkedIn, and you can see here the employees. So Demetrius Flannery, yeah, who is the one, the main one, when, director when, at BMF. When the hell did they create this? This two thousand three. Uh, oh wow, their LinkedIn is still. I didn't even know LinkedIn was around back then. Yeah, apparently. Wow. Okay. I'm trying to find the music, like the songs and like the artists and everything. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, guys, now you're going to see how they actually ran the operation with vehicles. Across the country. Yeah. Hey, Bob, did the black car just say it? No, the black car, no, it's not, but the gray one left yesterday. All right, that's good. Um, ask who do they want to go home or do they want to get in the black car when they get there? He said he'd rather go home. He said he got the thing they got to take care of. All right. I got him to go home while I have Papa take care. Did y'all catch that? That was all code word for making a drop, doing another drop back, uh, getting the guy paid, etc. You know, and this is very common, guys. It's not like they're on the phone talking about, oh, yeah, bro, I'm going to drop the drugs off of here at this place this time. No, they use code, code words. Um, and unless you know exactly what they're talking about, you might not be able to understand exactly what's being said. Prior to the PA boys' takedown, law enforcement had perceived the brothers as mid-level traffickers, small-time players in a much larger stage. In the mid-90s, these guys are at times delivering two, $300,000 to individuals who are sending that money to down to St. Louis and on to Colombian sources. That's who they are. But as the DEA started to build contacts and sources, an entirely new image was coming to light. What happens is in December of 03, early 04, Bob Bell, the other DEA agents, start, they start contacting their sources to try and get as much information as they can on the Flannery brothers. And, you know, with cases like this, guys, where you're trafficking a lot of drugs, obviously there's going to be money. It's always great to bring an IRS agent like this guy on board to help you follow the money. Because when you follow the money, that will get you to the main top guys. Now they start hearing stories about how Terry's got a mansion out in California. Meech's got places down in Atlanta. They're driving all these high-end vehicles. That's what you're hearing from sources. For years, Terry and Demetrius Flinnery attempted to live like ghosts, going back probably 10 years' worth of income tax return records. There were no records of them ever having filed. Along with that, they each had about at least five or six aliases and had that many different fictitious driver's licenses in several different states. 
Be a red flag when you do a crime, guys. So look, so one of the major things like that I've learned that's taking down a lot of uh drug trafficking organizations is that these people have never never have paid their taxes or never filed their taxes. So you can sell all the drugs in the world, but if you don't file your taxes, the IRS is coming. Um, especially uh like I'll give you guys an example. Al Capone. He didn't, he didn't get taken down because of selling drugs. He got taken down for money laundering. And if you look up BMF on Wikipedia, they'll say they got taken down for money laundering and, of course, drugs. From the mid-90s to early 2000, Meech and Terry went from a $1 million a year business to a one million a week business. The only way to achieve that kind of growth in the drug trade is to increase. $52 million a year, guys. And I'm gonna go ahead and put the inflation calculator here, but that's probably close to maybe a hundred mil nowadays. Increase the supply of your product. And that usually means cutting out middlemen and getting closer to the source. And you look at the industry with the drugs and how the movement of drugs come here in the States, the American blacks don't really control that trade. Demetrius Flannery went out to California. He just went out there looking for sources. He hooked up with one of the co-defendants, Wayne Joyner, California guy who, who knew some Mexicans. Meech and Terry may never have risen above middle-class dealers had they not met Wayne Joyner. He became one of the Flannery brothers' key people. Wayne Joyner was a drug trafficker from California who had uh, good connections. He knew Guys that could do houses, he knew the car guys, he knew the Mexicans. The Colombians. 52 million guys back in 03, it was approximately uh, 84 million today. Are the world's major producers of cocaine and were back in the 80s and 90s. But when the DEA started to really hammer the cartel's transportation uh, through the United States in the Caribbean and Florida, then the Mexican trafficking routes became more important, and they started paying the Mexican traffickers to take the cocaine into the United States through Mexico. Eventually, the Mexican cartels took over all of the transporting of the cocaine and getting it. And guys, this transition happened sometime in the you know 90s into the early 2000s, where Mexico started to take over as one of the main you know drug trafficking routes. Because at that point, you know the vice city days of the 80s and the 70s, where they're busting Colombian cartel members trying to bring drugs into Miami. Uh, they pretty much had run its course. So Colombian drug traffickers had to find a more efficient and safe way to bring it into the United States since uh, South Florida was so hot. And, you know, the U.S. government had become pretty proficient at getting rid of um, speedboats smuggling drugs into the United States. Do they still do it today? Of course, but not to the same extent that they did in the 80s. Now, most of the drugs that come into the United States, somewhere between 60 to 80 percent, come in through Mexico to the United States, about 90% of all the cocaine. Securing the Mexican source. And that's cocaine. I was talking about meth and, you know, heroin, etc. All those drugs are typically nowadays are coming in through uh, Mexico. Provided Meech and Terry with almost an unlimited supply of uncut cocaine for a substantially lower price than they could get from any U.S. distributors. But they were purchasing at the time from uh, 15 size per kilo. And the BMF organization was moving at least 600 kilos a month. This allowed them to literally corner the market. 
not every even top level drug dealer in a major city ever gets to that point. You have to have something special to get the trust of the cartels. They expanded their enterprise, establishing hubs in 11 states to unload their product. Terry moved to California to receive the bulk shipments, and Meech moved to Atlanta, which was an ideal distribution hub for all of Eastern America. There's about 10 different uh, highway routes that you can take out of the city to get out of here. And that route going from Florida all the way up through to New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, you got to go through Atlanta to get to those places. It's just physically, it's a great place to be. And also, it's a big enough city and already has enough of a drug culture of its own to provide cover for those people who are moving through the city itself. Atlanta was definitely becoming a strategic location for the drug trade, but the culture attracted Meech, too. By the late 90s, Atlanta had become a hotbed for activity for the hip-hop industry. Rappers were playing the streets with mixtapes, and fame producers like Jermaine Dupree, Outkast, Goody Mob, and Ludacris were attracting national attention. Guys, back then, Atlanta was not on the map like that, but Atlanta started to definitely take off in the early 2000s. Crunk took over right around 03, 04. I'll never forget, like, you know, Lil John, you know, yeah, yeah. all that crap. Thanks. And Atlanta just exploded on the map and took the, you know, the crown uh, from the Northeast, a.k.a. New York, which is why so many artists back then, you know, people like Nas, et cetera, saying hip-hop is dead, blah, blah, blah. They didn't like Southern rap because back then, Southern rap wasn't as lyrical and didn't tell a story to the same level. It was more, you know, dance music, you know, beats, and not necessarily lyrical content. And this is when Atlanta really started to take over in the early 2000s. Hip-hop as a business has two very distinct worlds, the streets and the boardroom. As it became mainstream, hip-hop started generating more money than anyone expected. With the connection to the streets comes the element of the criminal underworld. There is no secret that hip-hop record labels were being started with drug money. Jay-Z, for example, has always been honest about his previous life and how he left paper bags filled with cash for radio DJs. Meech, too, was captivated with the allure of the music industry. As he gained more money and power through his ever-expanding drug empire, he set his sights on conquering a new frontier. When the Detroit DEA decided to investigate the Black Mafia family, they knew the organization was going to be tough to penetrate. It was such a tight-knit group. There was no way to get somebody in. We could make buys from the underlings, but as far as getting somebody into the organization itself, it wasn't going to happen. All right, guys, when he says makes buys, what he means is you get an informant, buy drugs from a member of the organization and work your way up the totem pole or try to introduce an undercover agent. But what he's saying is that this uh, organization was so tight that they wouldn't let outsiders in. But early on, Bob Bell and his team got a lucky break. Using confidential informants enabled the investigation. They were able to identify a phone number for a BMF manager named Benjamin Johnson. Shortly after, they successfully got a court-ordered wiretap to listen in on his phone calls. After only a few short weeks, the Detroit... Bam. And then from there, they start with someone on lower level, listen to his phone, identify other conspirators in the, in the drug trafficking conspiracy, and then bam. Then they start writing wiretaps for their phones as well and working their way up the ladder. 
This is how you do federal investigations, guys. Detroit DEA struck gold. A couple of weeks into the wiretap, we intercepted a call. And we didn't have the person's name, but we immediately knew that it was Terry Flannery by his commanding voice and Benjamin Johnson's respect and deference for Terry. What up, though? I need to fly to Florida and drive his car back to Detroit, son. Okay, what do you need me to do with that, sir? As soon as possible. Okay, that's not a lot of white boy. Yes, sir. You got to drive this car like you got some sense because a hurricane going to come that way. Okay. We immediately knew we had Terry and knew we had an important... Bam. And I need you to drive this car somewhere. Why? Because he knows that thing is loaded with dope and they need to get it up to Detroit where they can sell it for way more. ...phone to Target for the next wiretap. Getting a wire on Terry's phone was the turning point in the DEA's investigation. They had finally infiltrated the inner sanctum. For each and Terry to successfully run a nationwide trafficking organization, they needed to establish a protective infrastructure. They set up stash houses in key hub cities, always in other people's names and usually in mansions and upper class neighborhoods. There is something that you... And stash houses, guys, are where large loads and large quantities of drugs are stored pending their further movement into the United States to whatever city they are destined for. And also keep in mind, basically this case opened up thanks to an informant giving a phone number, guys. Isn't that crazy? You get for living in those kinds of neighborhoods. And one of them is it's a safe place, not just in terms of keeping it away from the police, but in terms of keeping it away from other offenders. Somebody knows that you got nine million bucks worth of drugs in your house. They're going to come looking for it. The various stash houses had nicknames. There was the elevator, the gate, the White House. And that's actually really smart for them to store drugs in high-end neighborhoods where the police would never think to look. Most of the time when guys are stashing drugs, they're putting them in crappy stash houses in the middle of the hood. These guys thought a little bit different. And then there was the infamous Space Mountain, the modern multi-million dollar enclave that had a perfect wraparound driveway for limos to deliver 200 kilograms of cocaine located in the heart of Buckhead, the wealthiest neighborhood in Atlanta. Buckhead oh my God! snooty. Um, they don't like outsiders, but how a large national black organization <laughs> managed to, with the flash and the bling and the, and the rims and the cars and the girls, uh, how they managed to do this and nobody complained. Uh, in a neighborhood where they complain if your dog walks on your curb. Even the day we took everything down, we had more people on our backs about that. You know, we were making noise. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, we made noise, but uh, they never complained about him. In charge of the stash house was Jabo Brown, Meech's second in command. Jabo was really just kind of being with the general manager of the BMF. That's the guy that was in the picture from the BMF uh, wiki that we just sold you guys. And if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Vlad TV interviewed him. He would be like at the stash houses when the drugs would arrive. Like Meech would never be in the same room with drugs or anything like that. So it's almost like doing some of the dirty work that Meech really couldn't do or wouldn't do. So he was the guy who was really just running the ships for him. Another innovation that the two brothers used, which was not all too uncommon, was sophisticated traps in their vehicles to hide the cocaine and the money as they moved city to city. Wow. You have cars like this, and they want to build secret compartments. How, how does that work? You have people that sell jewelry for a living. They need to carry around their products. They need to carry around money. Sometimes they have uh, weapons for their personal protection. It varies according to what you want to put into the vehicle. Basically, in a vehicle like this, yeah. you know, we could take this entire area. We could take that carpet, and we can cut it. We can reattach it to a piece of aluminum, 
and bolt that to a welded enclosure under the vehicle, then we can make that piece pop open. We can make it motorize up. We can make it airtight. We can make it waterproof. We can make it however you want it, and it will look like there's nothing there. You could take this vehicle back to GM, and they wouldn't even know it was there. They had a Lincoln limo. They had about a million dollars. Kind of reminds me of St. Paul My Ride. Have you ever watched oh, yeah, that yeah, show yeah, yeah. on MTV? Yeah, I remember that. And it was actually popping right around this time. So these guys yeah. were basically doing pimping their rides for drugs. <laughs> in a secret compartment. And no one was able to find this money until two years later. They can be built that sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. They seize the vehicles and they don't find the money until two years later. That's... That's how you knew these guys took their craft seriously. Very sophisticated drug trafficking organization. Every vehicle was a moving trap. They were they were amazing. I mean, I had to admire their ingenuity. And they had real strict rules about like nobody who's below this level of management can even know how to open the traps that they had installed in these cars to access the drugs. I mean, which would be basically be like. Okay, put the car in reverse, turn on defrost, put, hold a magnet up to the dash, and turn on the windshield wiper. These traps were high-tech, very sophisticated. Yo, that's crazy. You have to do all that stuff to get it open, man. <laughs> Electronic, hydraulic, some of them had vacuum pumps in them to try to overcome or thwart drug-detecting canines. Wow. It would make it difficult. We, we were able to seize a Hummer limo. Um, and notwithstanding the best efforts of, of law enforcement to uh, find the secret panels, uh, we managed to miss it. Um, I think a year or so later, the man who bought the limo managed to find a million dollars in it. <laughs> oh, wow. On a trip to L.A. in 1999, Meech's dream of breaking into the music industry became possible. when He was introduced to a young, aspiring artist named Harima McKnight who was rapping under the name Blue Da Vinci. They shared a common vision, and Meech took an immediate affection to the young artist. Shortly after, the two founded BMF Entertainment. For the entire lifespan of the record label, Blue Da Vinci was the only artist signed. What we're focusing on right now is Blue Da Vinci. I believe that more, most labels take so much time out and focus on so many artists that you can never get the realness out of the one artist because you're focusing on 10 or 20 artists. That's why all our independent focus is on what Blue Da Vinci does. If he take off, then we take off. If he don't take off, then we don't want to take off. Simple. And just so you guys know, the reason why he was able to be all in on one artist like that and no other record label can necessarily do that is keep in mind, he had the drug money coming in. So it didn't matter if Blue Da Vinci blew or not. He was just using his stage act and this record label slash entertainment Thanks. company, quote unquote, to uh, launder the money and not make it look like they're doing other things. So, of course, <laughs> you know, he could afford to put all his eggs in one basket. Hell, he could go negative. It doesn't matter. The more negative he goes, even the better, because he's able to burn through that money and show that it's being used in a how do I say this? Legit business, allegedly. The business that they chose to hide behind 
to use as cover was also an industry that was critical for improving their reputation and providing them with the social capital that they needed. And it created loyalty, it created a mystique, it created interest, and it provided a fantastic cover for them. It was totally realistic. When you, when you see these guys and say, well, they're part of the music industry. They look the part, they act the part, they understand the culture of the hip-hop lifestyle. It's not like they were trying to open up, you know, a bunch of uh, McDonald's or something like that. And this BMF entertainment thing is, is more than just a record label production, so maybe doing music or just... That's a good point. These guys were basically hiding in plain sight, man. Mm-hmm. And the very industry that they got involved in glorifies this type of behavior of drug trafficking etc so here's the discography yeah i well, found it you found uh most of the of the albums are from the blue da vinci yeah like most literally 80 <laughs> percent. no real record label is gonna put all their eggs in one basket and not work on other artists too yeah. but that just goes to show they they had money to blow they didn't care you know they were making millions selling drugs who cares if blue da vinci actually makes <laughs> hit records this is really all about Going state to state and linking up motherfuckers from the streets, man, from all over. No matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, how fat you are, whatever. You know, niggas that got a little money and a lot of sense, man, we looking for and start making some of these black dollars happen. One of Big Meech's biggest self-proclaimed legacies was that he unified gangs from all over the country. Crips, Bloods, GDs, DPs. They all stood together underneath his black flag. And we got all type of niggas around here. It's short niggas, tall niggas, bald niggas, light skin, dark skin, braids, dreads, fat, whatever you want. We do it all. We don't discriminate. Matter of fact, after you leave here, you end up getting your teeth on something and coming up with something better. You know what I'm saying? Like a new car, new house. Maybe the kids get to go to school, private school, pay for courtesy of the mom. You know what I'm saying? We pay. You know, that's simple. A lot of niggas don't like to spend their money. We love to spend our money. We can't take none of this shit with us. This phenomenon is a testament to how BMF grew. Most guys who want to establish a drug empire, they're going to go off of the stereotype of what you believe you have to do to get there. And part of that is the violence. With daily images of cartel-related bloodshed being broadcast from the southern borders and gang violence running rampant in our own cities, we have an immediate prejudice that the drug trade goes hand-in-hand with violence. Um, will you call this Meech a gang? Meech and Terry took a different approach to extend their read. What was that? Will you call this a gang? Like, what's the difference? Yeah, this would be definitely be considered a gang. Um, like, uh, anytime you're committing you know, criminal activity in the furtherance of an organization, they can label you a gang or, or you're open up to, or you're open to RICO statute type laws. Upon entering new territories, they presented themselves as businessmen and through diplomacy, they created alliances with existing criminal entities. They kept their eye on the ball because, you know, you get enough bodies laying around and law enforcement attention is going to come your way probably faster than when there's not that type of activity. In a way, that's what made them so successful because they never engaged in a lot of violence, so that the attention was never drawn to them in the way that it might be to another group of people. As much as Meech... That's smart. Violence causes issues and police attention, which, you know, will make you get arrested and lose the money. So that was a smart business move. ...was a natural negotiator. The bottom line was probably the most persuasive element in BMF's success. 
With their vast supply, the brothers offered kilos of coke for only 17 grand, two to three thousand dollars less than their competitors. Wow. So the fact that they're able to get drugs, uh, cocaine, that much cheaper tells you that they were close to a very potent source. Yeah. Uncle Duty, wrong phone. Huh? Wrong phone. What up, though? What up? Hey, did you need a new chip to the new phone? My new check, what's one? The last one I got? The new chip. What you do with the phone that I get? Oh, yeah, I still got it. No, he ain't give it to me. He said he couldn't get a hold of Doug or some bullshit, and I had to leave. Uh, you got the old phone? Yeah. Uh, you got it on you? Yeah, I ain't got no time on it, though. You told me to burn out the time. Often, while we were intercepting <laughs> Terry talking on a particular phone, he would be using uh, push-to-talk phones in the background, having other conversations. So he, he had multiple phones going at any one time, and then, of course, had a reserve of phones for him and his organization members. So about the best thing we could do was is Terry would transition from one phone to another with 71 pace and spin to the next phone. And we successfully did that with about three of Terry's phones. The DEA sat back and listened for five months as Terry laid out the foundations of their investigation. It is from this monitoring that we're able to find out information about the participants or co-conspirators. We're also able to determine whether or not there is any drug activity taking place. We were able to listen to Terry direct the driver to take some kilograms of coke down to Louisville, Kentucky for distribution. That aided us in conducting a traffic stop and seizing 10 kilos from that particular load vehicle. This case could have ended. And what do I tell you guys? That, who did they use? They used the state police to make the stop so it doesn't look too crazy and make it look like it's a one-off event. But in reality, they knew that these, this vehicle was going to drive these drugs over to Louisville. They were going to intercept it and make it look less, how do I say this, obvious that it was a federal investigation versus just a lucky trooper getting a hit one day. With the wiretap on Terry's phone, DEA had him directing a guy to take the dope down south. They intercepted that car, got the dope. There was a decision made. DEA, IRS, and with the blessings of the prosecutor's office, you know, we're going to take it as far as we can go. You know, we're going to identify all the members of this organization. We're going to identify all the... And that's smart. Normally, you get that one hit and you're like, okay, we can get them now. But you're not going to get the whole organization. You need to let the criminal activity continue so that you can identify the entire organization. So in this case, I guarantee what probably happened was they seized the drugs from that guy, give him some BS state charge. He ends up getting let, let loose or whatever, and then they let the case continue to build to fruition. And on top of that, monitor the phones, because you best believe after he got stopped by a trooper, he's making phone calls like crazy saying, yo, the cops stopped me, the cops stopped me. And then, bam, what we're able to do, identify other conspirators that knew about that load, and they can all go down. Because now you're able to show what they were in the know and they were conspirators in this drug trafficking event. People who are helping them launder their money. And that's what happened. Over the course of five months, the DEA compiled over 900 pages of transcripts from Terry's phone calls, but there was not one phone call between Terry and Meech. Terry used to like to dilute and reconstitute his kilograms, stretching the number of kilograms to increase his profits, while Meech's theory was, don't sit on it, 
move it, and, and he enjoyed a reputation of, of distributing very pure kilograms. So on the street, Terry's cocaine was referred to as Moet. Not bad champagne, but Meech is referred to as Cristal, top shelf champagne. That's hilarious how the two brothers, one big drug trafficking organization, but they had different methodologies of selling their drugs, right? The flashy one is, hey, I want to get the best, you know, give y'all the best quality, that Cristal, which Cristal was really famous in hip hop back then. And then you got the other brother who's low key. He don't care. He's about his money. I'm going to dilute and stretch the hell out of these bricks and make more money. So very interesting that even their drug, tra drug trafficking activities were personified by each individual brother's personality. Very unique. A couple of months before we initiated our wiretap in April of 2004, while Demetrius was on house arrest down in the Atlanta area, his underboss, Chad Brown, was going around talking to Terry's customers, saying, Terry's dope is no good. He dilutes it. It's poor quality. You should be buying dope from Demetrius and our side. That upset Terry very much. So Terry took a group of individuals and confronted Chad Brown in a house that was full of girls, his friends, and embarrassed him and was screaming and yelling, waving the gun around, accusing him of, of attacking Terry's livelihood. Demetrius believed that Terry should have had that conversation with him out of loyalty for his side of the organization. He said, Terry may be my brother, but we're done. And it probably was oh, the wow. reason that we were unable to uh, identify a phone for Demetrius and never successfully intercepted any of his phone calls. Here we go. Here's Rick. We coming in at the top of the game. We got all, all the cars we want, all the houses we want, all the clothes we want, all the jewelry we want, and all the hoes we want. We don't need nothing else but to make good music. By 2004, Meech had solidified himself as a public figure. He was actively sponsoring young rappers in and around Atlanta. His father was a musician. He surrounded himself with musicians. I think that he had a genuine love of the rap scene in Atlanta in particular, which was blowing up in a big way at the time, in large part thanks to his willingness to sort of sponsor rappers. He really did think that if he could get one big break on his record label, that he might be able to stop with the illegal stuff. Maybe that's not reality, but that's what he said. Meech pumped excessive amounts of money into Blue's hip-hop career, believing that his financial backing could launch a young rapper into stardom. At a time when most record labels were faltering and budgets for music videos were being trimmed, Meech spent a little over $500,000 on a little-known track, We're Still Here. I want to put things in perspective for you guys back then directors took music videos very seriously it wasn't uncommon for you to see a music video cost an artist a million dollars so this was quite a bit of money back then for a small label to put behind an artist's music video let alone uh artists that isn't really on a major label but of course how are they able to do that drug money that's why Meech didn't care Instead of getting five artists, get up, put a hundred thousand a piece into each one of those artists, and you're doing everything small. If you put the whole million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars behind Louis Da Vinci, now you got a big project and look big and everything bought. But if you just put a hundred thousand between between these five artists, and and you got a cheap project, nobody may not recognize one of the five. 
The hype seemed to have an impact. BMF's image, street credibility, and apparent success attracted many rising artists. Blue Da Vinci was seen in many music videos with Young Jeezy and Fabulous, and he was regularly collaborating with known acts including Jadakiss and Nelly. Oh, Jadakiss, OG back in the day, man. And these are some of the top artists back in the early 2000s, too. Mm-hmm. This is the, before the days of, you know, these fucking weird SoundCloud rappers. Or, <laughs> you know, this is before Kanye West. This is before freaking... Who are, who are the top Kendrick Lamar, J. Drake. Cole, way Drake. This is way before all these guys, man. Everybody, kids around that says Blue Da Vinci was the worst, which is hilarious. Saying something, nigga, it's a real movement going on right here. Young Blue, yeah. right there, Young Jesus, baby, D, and the rest of the motherfuckers that roll with the BMF Entertainment Squadron. There was a, an intercepted call between Terry Flinnery and his sister, and Terry poured his heart out to his sister. He was very frustrated with Demetrius, very angry over their split. He was very concerned that Demetrius's flamboyant lifestyle was going to cause law enforcement to identify what they were doing and bring heat on the whole organization and bring them down. The irony of it was that Terry's call for being intercepted by DEA. Oh, wow. Bumbaka! So the low-key guy was the one that actually got everything jammed up versus the one that was out here partying and showing out. They could never get up on his phone. How you doing today, son? What up? I still feel like I'm on a tight tack. When you got pulled over, you gave me a real name. I gave him everything, and you know what? You know what he gave me a problem about that. That can. What can? About over there. About that other situation. Yeah, that's what they said. They sent the people to the house about that. Yeah, because he went real crazy over that too. But he was mad because he couldn't stand nothing. That's why he did that too. All right, so I know what to do for that. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, Red-handed. About the same time, the Detroit DEA was developing their investigation on Terry's side of the organization. Bolton County Prosecutor Rand Sahey was overhearing rumors of the mysterious Black Mafia family's presence in Atlanta. The whole idea of a Black Mafia family was like a ghost story. You know, the cops told, like you would tell to your kids. There was just, there was no presence. You didn't see them. Um, but if you had asked people on the street, mentioned BMF, they wouldn't talk about it. So it was very real to the people who were selling drugs and doing drugs. But for the rest of us, we had no proof that that existed. The Atlanta side of the investigation began on the night of September 7, 2003. Police were alerted to a shooting after an opposing crew targeted a BMF stash house for a robbery. We had a case. It was a shooting, a home invasion, where the people who were in the home actually shot the invaders moved everything out, dropped the invaders off at the uh, hospital, but they left the key of Coke in the process of cleaning out their house. It was, their house had a large bank-type vault in it, and they 
<laughs> could you imagine you shoot the invaders and you're like, God damn. All right. We can't go down for killing them because this is drug money here. We can't articulate self-defense. So let's clean the place up, take them, drop them off at the hospital and get the hell out of this house. And then you leave a kilo of Coke in there. Bruh. Bumbocat. <laughs> L stash house operators. Claim to be BMF. And that's where it started. One of the men arrested at the house was one of Meech and Terry's key financial consultants. It was Doc Marshall and Kenneth Harvey, the two defendants in that case. Doc was very smart with numbers. He was really. So this mess up is what led to this entire investigation. So a botched robbery led to the opening of this case. Crazy stuff. He like called the CFO of BMF. He ran all kinds of spreadsheets and reports for both Meech and Terry. Bill Marshall is the kind of guy that drug traffickers need. He knew how to work the financial side of things and obtain loans on cars and homes and to cover up the source and ownership of those items. Without a guy like Bill Marshall, they cannot enjoy the fruits of their labor. The incident was not the first time. And that's the worst guy to flip and turn into a source because he's the one running the money. So he'll be able to point you to all the higher-ups because the higher-ups are the ones that collect the money. So W for the government, L for the <laughs> BMF. Because <laughs> if you guys saw when it showed his picture, it said cooperated in, in multiple cases. And Doc Marshall had come up on law enforcement's radar. He first came on our radar during a roundup on the Puritan Avenue investigation. We seized a BMW 760, a $125,000 car. The vehicle had been obtained through Bill Marshall's business called Exquisite Empire, which was based out of Atlanta. As police searched the crime scene, they found a key notebook that contained obvious drug records of the trafficking organization, including associates' names and phone numbers and straw buyers' identities. That is an investigator's dream, guys, to find the actual ledger with all the notes that show everything. Remember, guys, this is before the, the Internet age, really. You know, I mean, Internet was around, but it was smartphones weren't around where you can punch all this stuff into your notepad and have it encrypted and locked. People had to write it down somewhere and be able to keep track to pay off suppliers, couriers, stash house operators, etc. You got to have your numbers in line to know what's coming in, what's going out and what you got. The shooting at Doc Marshall's house was Atlanta's first taste of the Black Mafia family but it was not its last. Meech himself made headlines two months later for his involvement in a high-profile double homicide. On the night of November 12, 2004, Big Meech was treated in the ER for a gunshot wound to his buttocks. Earlier that night, there was a shootout outside of Club Chaos. Got shot in the ass? What? <laughs> a hot nightclub in Atlanta. One of the men killed at the club was P. Diddy's bodyguard. Anthony Wolf-Jones. Hey. Wolf was a well-known guy here in New York so. who was very much a street guy. And Wolf was one of these guys that you really would mess around with. You know, he had a very quick temper. The story goes that Meech was hanging out with Jones's ex-girlfriend, and Jones would not have it. An argument ensued, and then guns got drawn. And then Meech had his guy with him, and Wolf had his guy with him. And ultimately, Wolf and his guy lost. Meech was initially arrested for the double homicide. The Atlanta Police Department conducted a search on a mansion they believed to be Meech's residence. They get this Bel Air Lake House, the White House, which is a Flannery house. They go there looking for a gun that they believe Demetrius Flannery may have used in the shooting at the club down there. Although the murder weapon was never found, a notebook similar to the one seized at Doc Marshall's house was recovered. The Atlanta investigation was heating up, but Meech's murder charges would soon be dropped. No witnesses. Bam. So. 
They couldn't prove the murder, but they ended up getting something even better. Another ledger showing that he's also involved in drug trafficking. And remember, guys, when the police search your home, if they have a search warrant to be in the home and they find other evidence of other crimes, they're able to pursue that. So now they're able to link their brother's ledger to uh, to match the two brothers' different ledgers and establish that they both are running a drug trafficking organization. This would come forward, and as Jones was shot from behind, there was not enough evidence to maintain the charges. It was a justified shoot. No matter how bad everybody wanted to get me, that was one where the evidence pointed to the fact that they were defending themselves. Jones stepped out alive. Over the course of the next three years, the Black Mafia family's reputation in Atlanta grew more imposing and violent. They were violent. They would walk in the clubs and take over the clubs. They wanted your girlfriend, they'd take your girlfriend. They wanted your car, they'll take your car. There was not a damn thing you could do about it. The gang's numbers swelled, and their ominous presence loomed throughout the city's nightclubs. There were stories of people getting thrown off balconies at bars, punched in the face, and kicked and stomped. <laughs> that was the reality of being you know, So for every grandmother whose grocery bill they paid for at Publix, there was three grandsons lying in the hospital somewhere with broken bones. Atlanta had become a battleground, and the violence seemed to swirl around BMF and its associates. Often it was impulsive and senseless, but at times the motives were far more menacing. Oh, I didn't know that. So I didn't know that the what? people that tried to kill Gucci Man, I knew they were wow. they were associates of Jeezy, but I didn't know that they had ties with Black Mafia too. But that makes sense. That's crazy. You have a video with him, right? A video of who? Gucci Mane? No? Uh, no. Oh, I thought you did. No, not Gucci. I got some shit that'll stand you up, and I got some shit that'll take your life in this motherfucker. Nigga, this that 357, nigga, that Trey Pound, nigga, Magnum, nigga, with, the, with, the, with, with a lot of gunpowder behind each shot. <laughs> this that shit that's gonna blow you about four feet back, nigga. <laughs> I only got six of these shots. I only need one. As more and more attention was being brought upon the organization, Meech became openly defiant in believing his hip-hop company could blur the line between art and reality. Probably no secret to them that we were after them. They thought they were untouchable, and they were taunting us. Blue, man, this man is interfering with my business. You need to get down here and talk to this man. I don't know what's going on. I'm trying to count this. I don't know why somebody let him in the room to see what's going on anyway, man. In 2004, he even commissioned billboards in Atlanta claiming the world was BMFs, a throwback to Scarface's mantra. The billboards was when it was enough was enough. That billboard was always a bone of contention with the district attorney himself. Uh, the fact that they could just be so out there. He was very yeah. determined. Yeah. Imagine yeah. you're a big-ass drug trafficker with a billboard <laughs> trying to show that, oh, yeah, the world is ours, and, you know, we're music uh, label, and these guys know in the back of their minds that these guys are selling drugs. hundreds of kilos of cocaine, man. So that, that makes them want to get you even more, bro. And so he took the handcuffs off of us. Meech was put under constant surveillance, and an Atlanta-based task force was assigned to topple the family. They used similar strategies of the Detroit DEA and got a wiretap on a low-level dealer. 
frequency wires were running, they were manned 24-7. I don't believe that we ever came off of them. And then a lot of the agents, Chip Cook, Mike Hannon, these guys would come in when they weren't scheduled. Just to go back through and review, they put the case together. Their diligence paid off, and they were able to spin up several times all the way up to a high-level BMF manager favored by Big Meech himself. They would watch The Wire on HBO. And they would talk about it. <laughs> and we would we'd sit there white-knuckled uh, the episodes where they would throw all the burners away. And they would talk about, yeah, we, good things these idiots down here don't know how to wiretap. Or, you know, or they get paranoid, go, let's just text. Or they say, oh, my God, how crazy is that? They're watching a the wire while they're on a wire about to get busted like the people they're watching. Bro. Bumbuka! <laughs> Call me on this number. Talk about, you know, kilos of cocaine. Be like, hey, did you pick up the trees? And, you know, I got 50 trees sitting in my car. They gave us a blueprint for what they were going to do every time. As the evidence mounted, the Atlanta task force conducted a series of takedowns on BMF associates and stash houses. Mason started to see ghosts. He was seeing cars and cops everywhere he went. The heat was on Meach, and he knew it. He pulled his crew out of Atlanta and headed toward Miami. He had a female assistant, Yogi. She disappeared first. Once she disappeared, we knew that this was in the wind. So, so we decided to do it all the warrants. He was ordering everybody out. People were scrambling. It was almost anticlimactic. There was no arrests. We hit all the houses and everybody was gone. Meech had adhered to a strict doctrine. Never talk on the phone. Never be around the drugs or the money. Never put anything in your own name. He thought this code would insulate himself from law enforcement, but now he found himself on the run. A lot of times, the dope never touches the hands of your top-level guys. Uh, so sometimes the only way to link them to that dope is to follow the money back. The million-dollar joints, man, from states. Nowadays, it's the only way to link it back to them. Top guys in the organization almost never touch the drugs. They just touch the money. And when you follow the money, you find the head. State, man. Uh, we really, really doing it. Large sums of cash. But where's that coming from? We caught a break with some of our intelligence and financial records, and that changed people's perception from it's an urban legend to wow, these guys are actually making millions and millions of dollars and essentially living better than celebrities. I mean, flying around in Learjets, staying in presidential suites, living in multi-million dollar homes in multiple states. Meech was down in Miami. There was a place he was renting there, this gated house, at like 30 grand a month. Every place we stay at, L.A., Atlanta, Detroit, we have homes, our own homes. We don't have to go in and rent shit. We got our own houses. We got our own cars. We got our own hoes. We got our own clothes. It was claimed that the funds were legitimately being generated through the entertainment branch of BMF. You don't know all the money that Demetrius Plenner spent in the clubs or on clothes or on girls. But and we know from the investigation that was documented, a million plus in cars purchased, 400000 in cash for a car, 250000 in cash for a car, 100000 in cash for a car. Terry Flannery's house in... And guys, this is the in the early 2000s. This is big money back then. On Mulholland Drive, 600 and some thousand cash through bank accounts to, you know, make that purchase. To put a number on it, I mean, millions. Holy shit. <laughs>
and I'm sure they went ahead and looked at like BMF's, you know, records. We know for a fact Blue Da Vinci ain't making that much money. (laughs) (laughs) They felt that on the business side of things with the music that that scene is so legitimate that it provides cover for all of these expenditures that you're engaging in. Meech had a fleet of luxury cars fit for a sultan. Rolls-Royce Phantoms, Bentley Continentals, Lamborghinis. Apparently he maybe had the only white Maybach in the United States. He had one shipped to himself from Saudi Arabia. It wouldn't take an auditor very long to realize that there was way more money being spent than would be coming in through hip-hop. For Meech's 36th birthday, he threw himself a million-dollar star-studded party at the Atlanta nightclub compound, complete with champagne fountains and live exotic animals. That's the part of him I, I really like. <laughs> what? Bumbaka! You got an elephant at his party? What the fuck? Yo. What? Talk about That's drawing attention to yourself. Level. Yo. The Meech of the Jungle. <laughs> That's Meech of the Jungle, yeah, bro. Nigga shit, man. man Holy. L for this editor was not watermark. What was that you said? Like L for the editor of this documentary. Oh, the yeah. watermark. Put in the watermark? Is... Yeah. Yeah, man. What yeah, it is what it is. I think those were the fun days of Meech. Um, him telling Atlanta he was there. And then came the strip clubs. BMF was notorious for their overindulgence in the nightlife. I was in the clubs at the time when the BMF guys were here in New York where they were spending tons of money. Girls would just pick them up. They would have a payday when BMF came to town. BMF would go out in droves. Each member would get his own $400 bottle of Cristal champagne. The clubs either alternately loved it or hated it when they came in because they would sell out of champagne on the one hand. They'd have to deal with sort of the threat of violence. y'all dudes out there talking about y'all making rain, man. We the originators of making it rain. That's a message to everyone else. I've got so much money, I literally throw it up in the air and not even care about it. When we go out at night, whatever we spend, 50000 100000 in the motherfucking club, we can afford to do it because we ain't bring it all with us. A lot of niggas don't like to spend their money. We love to spend our money. We can't take none of this shit with us. None. Ain't no armored trucks pulling up at no funerals. The best relationship and partnership in federal drug law enforcement are a group of DEA agents married up with a group of IRS agents. It's a whole nother expertise and full-time job to exploit and uncover the layers of laundered money and items purchased secretly by nominees. Typically, these people aren't going to have anything in their name, which was the case with the Flannery brothers. Absolutely nothing. They don't file tax returns, no assets. So what you have to do is start looking at family members. The house that Terry Flannery had in L.A., his girlfriend, Tanisa Welsh, it's in her name. He sets up a company for her out there called Oracle Motorsports. Really doesn't do anything, but he's got all these high-end cars in there, which are his cars, which he's got auto brokers out there that he's feeding money to, buying his cars, keeping them in their names. For years, IRS agent Scartosi traced the money back to Meech and Terry continually uncovering more and more people who helped the two brothers to hide and wander their money. Terry had a girlfriend here in Detroit. He had a house for her in Canton. Started looking at how this young lady buy this house. Show she put, you know, 
hundred and some thousand dollars down on it. Well, how she put that, where'd that money come from? Cashier checks that came out of a credit union. Where'd the money come from to fund those? You know, it's just a matter, you know, you, again, you just build and build and piece and piece. One unsuspected accomplice to the two brothers was the famed jeweler to the stars, Jacob Arabov. He essentially, of course, is a businessman and is in business to make money. And Demetrius and Terry Flinter had a lot of money to spend, and they liked spending it on, uh, besides cars and homes, on nice jewelry, very flamboyant jewelry. One watch that Terry bought was encrusted with diamonds. It was valued at about $100,000, in fact. Jacob, the jeweler, extended a, a million-dollar line of credit to the brothers. To leave a voice message, press 1, or just wait for the call. Swipe boy. SOS, you left me. To leave a voice message, press 1, or just wait for the call. Swipe boy. SOS, you left me in the jungle, man. It's the jungle out there, man. If you are satisfied with your message, press 1. To listen to your On October 28, 2005, the long-awaited federal indictment for Demetrius and Terry Flannery was unsealed. 25 BMF members were initially charged with a range of felonies, including money laundering, conspiracy to distribute cocaine, and for the brothers, running a continuing criminal enterprise. We had overwhelming information and evidence, and it just kept growing exponentially. In fact, the problem for us really became not was there enough evidence it, it became keeping the evidence organized trying to determine what evidence to use and what not to use we had so much the dea's case was based on wiretap evidence both on terry's and meech's side of the organization the irs had compiled a massive amount of evidence demonstrating that the two brothers had been hiding and laundering huge sums of money proceeds from illegal drug operations Together, the DEA and the IRS had coordinated local police departments from all around the country and amassed enough evidence to demonstrate the extraordinary reach of the Black Mafia family. On initiating the investigation, Frank and myself and other agents went to great pains to try to identify random law enforcement contacts with members of the BMF. And in fact, we were able to identify approximately or more than 500 kilograms worth of seizures from random. This is crazy, guys. Look at all these one-off hits at different dates and times from different agencies that they were able to all link back to BMF. Law enforcement activity and several Yo, Mara, million dollars with the money seizures. Yeah. So what happens with that money? Where does that go? So after, after they're arrested and all that stuff? Like so this agency that seizes it typically keeps it. And then what ends up happening is the DEA can use the evidence from that seizure to link it back to their case to show that there's a pattern of drug trafficking activity. Right, but like what happens to the money? Like oh, where does gets, that go? It goes back to the agency that seized it. To so they pay for it. overtime, you know, yeah. Typically, it goes into their treasury fund. Um, they use it to pay for overtime, new equipment, etc. It goes back. Yeah, to, well, it depends it. on who seizes it. If the feds seize it, goes to the treasury fund, which goes back to government. If the locals seize it, it goes directly, typically, to the police department or the local city government. Oh, I see. Okay. We knew who the players were as far as when we know somebody got stopped. Okay, we know that, that that was associated with BMF. Now let's backtrack and find out exactly how he was tied in. Analysis would be done of the phones they were carrying, and the address books would be looked at, and there would be a common theme in the, the names that were stored inside the cell phones. Investigation from there on the vehicles and the titles and the ownership 
often led to tying those vehicles and those individuals and, and those seizures back to the BMF. On the lead up to the takedown, tensions were high. Years of hard work had gone into the investigation. They needed to catch Meech and Terry. It was a concern that Terry and Demetrius might get away. They had passports. They were worldly. They had traveled to Europe and elsewhere and had the means to disappear. And if they disappeared, my way of thinking is that the case was a failure. But Marshall's doing what they do well. They came up with some information about Demetrius's whereabouts. They actually arrested Demetrius in Frisco, Texas on October 20th. Terry was taken into custody in uh, the St. Louis, Missouri area the day of October 26th. And in pretty short order, we had all 25 of our defendants off the Detroit indictment in pocket. And normally, guys, what ends up happening when you got a big case like this, you want to delegate the arrest to the marshals. You give them the warrant. They go get the guy for you. And then you just kind of come in and be ready with your cup of coffee and interview them when they come back. They do a lot of the legwork. It's one thing to do an investigation. It's another thing to know exactly where your targets are at on the day that you're trying to arrest them. And this is where the marshals specialize because they track them down. They arrest them. It's on them. You don't got to worry about it. You just come in and show up after the fact and talk to your subject. Pocket. Several of the 25 defendants immediately began to cooperate with the DEA, including one of Terry's most trusted managers. This whole death before dishonor. Yeah, yeah here we go. And then you yourself are looking at a pretty long sentence. The way I look at it, it's every man for himself. We're just really trying to motivate niggas and let niggas you know, know that niggas is really out here getting it like this, man. It ain't hard to get. This shit ain't far away. All a nigga got to do is get on a real serious grind, man, with a real group of niggas that ain't going to fucking tell nigga. Another key defendant that turned, which is hilarious because I think, if I'm not mistaken, Blue Da Vinci ended up snitching on Big Meech. Was BMF CFO William Doc Marshall. Bill Marshall, not unlike many other defendants in this investigation, began to cooperate, essentially looking for a way to reduce his uh, future prison sentence. He really laid out a lot of the financial stuff of the BMF organization. He really filled in the holes as far as how the straw buyers worked how they move money from city to city. His information was very useful going forward. And we went from 25 defendants to where we ended up, which was the conviction of 66 defendants in uh, Detroit alone. With the help of Doc Marshall and other cooperating defendants, the DEA was able to effectively dismantle the Black Mafia family. All in all, 125 members, associates and relatives were indicted and convicted. Out of the 125 members indicted, only eight. So rapper and star as BMF Entertainment was sentenced October 30th, 2008 to five years, four months of federal prison. It said that McKnight was used, uh, this is Blue Da Vinci, by the way, guys, because of the fact he had very small hands and can get that last kilogram or two of cocaine out of a stash spot where others could not. Wow, hilarious. <laughs> oh, man. Went to trial. Just two days. But notice how much little time he got, guys. Five years? He probably cooperated. Days before their trial dates, Meech and Terry both pled guilty without cooperation. They were sentenced for 30 years. Matter of fact, he'll be released December 16, 2031. He will be 61. I actually looked him up, guys. He's going to be released here, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 2028, actually. So it looks like he shaved some time off. I'm on the BLP website right now. Uh, I'll show it to you guys here in a second. Both Demetrius and Terry Flannery and, and almost 
all the rest of the members of the organization realized that the evidence was absolutely overwhelming. So leading out to 30 years, I suppose, seemed a little bit better than life. Oh, he definitely snitched too. I didn't know Jacob, uh, the jeweler, would end up getting arrested because these guys too. Um, he just got false statements, but he definitely cooperated to get that little time. Uh, all right, so I'm looking right now. I'm going to share the screen with y'all. He's going to get out May 5th, 2028, Demetrius Flannery. And let me go ahead and move real quick. And what I'll do is share screen here, guys. One sec. Here he is, right here, guys. Your boy, Demetrius Flannery, 54, black, released a May 5th, 2028, and he's being held right now at FCI Sheridan, which is a medium security federal correctional institute uh, with an adjacent minimum security satellite camp and a detention center. So, with 1,500 plus inmates, almost 1,600. So, yeah, he'll be out home. Where is he'll, it? He'll be home very soon. Uh, it's in Oregon. Oh. Sheridan, Oregon, Oregon. All right, let's get back to the documentary. It's almost done. Hope you guys are enjoying this, man. Like the video, subscribe to the channel. Yeah, it's daylight right now, guys. That's how we're how hard we're grinding right now. The financial judgment in the indictment and what the Flannery's took responsibility for when they pled the 30-year prison term was $270 million. And if you conservatively convert those dollars into kilos, we're talking about the distribution between 15 and 18,000 kilograms of cocaine was during the life of this conspiracy. And this one of the largest homegrown domestic distribution organizations in the history of our country. I wish I could be there tonight, but God knows I wish I could be there tonight. But one day soon, I'll be there with God's blessing. I just want to thank everybody for coming. Hope they enjoyed it. Don't want to take up no more of your time. Just had a time in your life, and I'll see somebody in the morning. And if you see, like, most Damn. collaborators snitch. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, they still go stitches. That's funny. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that, Angie? Final thoughts? I really liked the documentary. It was good, right? Yeah, That's why I wanted y'all to see it, because you guys got, like, the actual insight as to how the investigation was done. Not just, like, yeah. you know, the history of being met, but y'all got, like, the details of, like, who was the conspirator, how they identified people, all that stuff. So I really like documentaries like that go, that go into depth of the actual investigation versus the organization, if that makes sense. But anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that one, man. I'm happy we were able to find it. Sun's out right now. I'm tired as hell. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel. <laughs> Check that out was Angie Black Breaking Bad right there. <laughs> on So Angelica with two A's uh, at the end. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did most. All right, guys. Yeah, so essentially, that's what pretty much happened to BMF. Um, now, personally, um, a lot of them, and when it when it, everything started falling down, majority of them cooperated. Blue Da Vinci cooperated. 
Um, in fact, if you guys go, uh, if you guys are uh, watch Vlad, Vlad has actually done a lot of interviews with a lot of ex uh, BMF members. I'm not gonna show it, but I'm I'm not gonna play them. But I'll definitely share my screen and show you guys where to find it. So, Ladon, um, that's a real BMF affiliate. Um, Sosa, that was a real BMF affiliate. One of my favorite affiliates. He he, he told the straight up truth. Uh, Brandy Brandy Davis was a BMF affiliate, and um, definitely uh, Jabo. Jabo took the truth as well too, and he also you know let it be known that you know Blue Da Vinci definitely cooperated. <laughs> along with a lot of others. But, you know, I hope you guys like this. And more little stories, guys. Just don't do crime. Because eventually, you know, you're going to get caught. It took 15 years for them to get caught. But eventually they got caught. And, you know, uh, and Meech is still in, locked up to this day. Um, the brother, he actually got out because of COVID. Um, but, you know, they don't necessarily have all of that money that they were playing with now. They might still have some money, you know. They got the BMF series going on and whatnot, but uh, yeah. But I hope you guys like this video. Please definitely like, subscribe, and share. Let me know what I can do to make my live streams a lot better. I know I didn't really talk too much on this one, but that's because you know I really wanted to get the full BMF story. But peace.